Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Book Network. I am Latif Tariq, Assistant Professor of History and History Program Coordinator at Elizabeth City State University. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Kimberly Brown Pelham, author of Black Beauties of African American Pageant Queens in the Segregated South. Dr. Pelham specializes in the history of women's images, Southern culture, and Black freedom struggle. Her contribution to publicly Accessible history include work at the Smithsonian Institute's National Museum of American History, the Rosa Parks Museum, Google's Art and Culture Series. She is the curator of a virtual museum, museumofblackbeauties.com. She is currently a member of the history faculty at Florida A&M University. Dr. Pelham, welcome to this interview today. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so I'm going to start right off with question number one here, and then we'll flow through the interview. The history of Black girls and women is a very specialized topic. How did your life experiences and, and beauty pageants help you to develop this book project? Oh, wow. Um, such an important question. I think that, you know, we always talk about how it's important for us to um be in control of our own narratives. And um, I think my life certainly gives me some sort of intimate insight as it relates to, of course, uh, being a woman, a Black woman, and a Black woman who has had intimate experience in the beauty culture space. And so I'll just share a little bit about you know, how my own mother and my grandmother raised me in Montgomery, Alabama, which is the home of the civil rights movement. Uh, Going to HBCU homecomings was a huge part of my growing up and not just the HBCUs that my parents were directly affiliated with, but any and every Black institution that you can think of, uh, my family found ways to support and engage with. And so um, many of my family members are graduates of Tuskegee University and Alabama State University. And so I recall going to those homecoming parades and seeing black women perched on the top of floats and, you know, wearing these long satin gloves. And although the weather didn't call for it, you know, being um, decorated, so to speak, in these rabbit fur stoles and these big white dresses and adorned with crowns. And I was just always very, very fascinated by that um, to see um, Black community gather in such a way um, and to see Black women literally lifted and given a platform and is and, and seen as something worthy to be praised. I always... Um, I remain still uh, intrigued by that because there's so much uh, that speaks to the antithesis of that, which is that Black women are not valuable, they are not beautiful, um, and certainly not um, worthy to be praised. And, you know, I'll just take this moment now to speak the name of Breonna Taylor. And, you know, just thinking about how Black women's lives are often dismissed, um, pageantry created, for me at least, an opportunity to see the lives of Black women in a different light. All right. Thank you a lot. Um, One of the key 
I guess, concepts in your book that kind of stuck out to me. Um, it's the term beauty-centric or beauty-centric racism. Please explain beauty-centric racism and how did Black, pad black beauty pageants include race work? Oh, certainly. So when we talk about American racism in general, um, white women have always been used as ornamental benchmarks by which beauty and health and value should be measured. And we see that throughout the course of American history, uh, the ways in which laws were um put into place based on the devaluing of Black women's bodies, whereby the opposite occurred for um, our white counterparts. And that tradition we see manifest itself, you know, up until the turn of the century and with the establishment of the Miss America pageant in 1920. Um, it is known for its infamous Rule 7, which does not dissipate until the 1970s when you do have a Black woman to participate as a contestant. Um, and Rule number 7 simply stated that one had to be white and in good health in order to grace the Miss America stage. And, you know, there are certain things that are just very symbolic of American culture and identity, whether you're talking about a Coca-Cola, American pie, um, certainly the Miss America brand is one of those things that people think of as it relates to the identity of the United States of America and Black women being shut out of that speaks to the ways that beauty um, is one arm of white supremacy and racism. One of the things that I found in your book um, in reading it is that it helps to get rid of a lot of myths that are automatically inherited in the African-American community. Um, for myself, before I even read the book, I was like, okay, Black beauty queens, I know they're just going to be like all light-skinned queens. <laughs> but that certainly was not the case. It definitely appeared that in Black beauty pageants, it represented the spectrum of colors and hues. And one of the titles that, or subtitles that kind of caught my eye was No Color Bias and Attractive Co-Ed Selection. And in reading that, they were very specific in pointing out whether this particular queen was dark-skinned, whether she was light-skinned, whether she was light brown, or whether she was fair complexion. But they gave equal credit to all of the women being very beautiful. Why do you think Black people during the pageants during that time made it a great effort to look at all of the hues and skin colors of Black women? Well, it's just part of Black people's nature to be inclusive, right? And so I think colorism has to be addressed as something that is a direct result of white supremacy. It's not a part of who we are as a people um, naturally. And so that's not to say that colorism did not exist in Black pageants, but you're absolutely right in that many of them, particularly um, 
I think it needs to be emphasized immediately after slavery um, were intentional about um, body positivity, um, hue inclusivity, and all of those things um, because Black people understood that their humanity was at stake. The way in which they were being portrayed, um, whether you're talking about you know wanted posters for enslaved people all the way up to you know, birth of a nation, the images associated with African bodies in the United States um, were terrible. And so Black people understood that because their humanity was at stake, the images that they wanted to project of themselves um, must be inclusive of all persons of African descent. And so I'm glad you you found that passage in the book. Um, and there are many others that speak to that. Uh, there's an old uh, glossy magazine known as Our World. Um, and they printed an article in the 1940s um, titled America's 100 Most Beautiful Negro Women. And again, they are very specific about skin color, body type, and all of those things. But in those 100 women that are represented in this layout, there is huge diversity in what they look like. In your research, the Black pageant culture was developed at different levels of Black life. For instance, there was a Miss Lincoln High School in Tallahassee, Florida, 1957 and 1958, Josephine Merritt crowned Miss Tuskegee Institute in 1960, along with community and fraternity queens. Why did Black organizations and influential Black people such as Ralph, Ralph Bunch, Adam Clayton Powell, and Black business owners find it necessary to support Black pageants? Well, if you go all the way back to um, someone who I think we both have a great deal of admiration for, um, and that is Carter G. Woodson, pageantry and public presentation have always been a means of public engagement on a large scale for Black people. And so these pageants weren't just one-off competitions that were completely unrelated to anything else going on in Black life. In fact, they were usually connected to other Black institutions, Black organizations, a Black newspaper, a Black church. Um, in one case, I believe it's 1914, where you had a pageant take place in New York, and it is part of a larger race exhibition. You know, they used to do these exhibitions that were supposed to be representative of Black progress since slavery. And so the opening event for the entire exhibit is a pageant. And so I think it is incumbent upon us to really, really appreciate how um, elders and ancestors understood that curating our own images um, was central to arguing um, our humanity in a nation that argued against it. In your book, your book have a lot of photographs and there are a lot of photographic images of different queens from local queens, um, from college queens. Um, what type of archival research did you do in order to collect these photos? Um, Howard University was extremely important 
in uh, my research, uh, Howard University has always been an innovator as it relates to Black life and culture. There's a woman by the name of Mary Rose Reeves Allen who arrives at Howard in, uh, I believe it's 1920 or 1925, memory escapes me, but it's certainly during what many historians called Howard University's golden years. And she works there for over 60 years. And while she's there, she establishes the um, Department of Physical Education for Women. And that might sound like, you know, calisthenics and that sort of thing. But aside from that, uh, she teaches her students about body care, um, presentation in the public place, behavior, so forth and so on. And she even establishes a four-year curriculum in which she calls the Howard Woman, um, where she instructs students on how to present themselves, how to speak, um, how to care for themselves physically. And um, what she's doing, in my opinion, is really establishing a laboratory for Um, what Black women should be, uh, both in their interior lives and in uh, the public sphere. While you have these men like Elaine Locke and others who are theorizing about a Black aesthetic and who we should be, um, Mary Rose Reeves Allen is actually teaching um, Black women Um, what she believes will be a a successful uh, set of standards by which to um, exhibit oneself and behave. And so all of her papers are at Moreland Spingarn. Um, I definitely dived into those. Um, Yearbooks at Howard were extremely important. Yearbooks at Tuskegee. Um, Tuskegee has an incredible archive of their queens. In fact, in the 1980s, they had a 100-year celebration of Miss Tuskegee. And so those records were incredibly valuable to the book project. Uh, FAMU, my alma mater, of course, um, was important in terms of collecting images and establishing a strong narrative for how Black institutions especially represent a continuum of celebrating Black women and providing a platform for honoring them. So um, Black institutions, I would say, um, were the most important in crafting uh, the book. But I also did some research at UCLA and um, did a lot of oral interviews as well for those local queens. How did the Black Power era and the rise of feminism affect Black pageantry? You know what? I think it depends. Uh, This is a great segue. It depends on the institution, right? And so for Black institutions, we had already been celebrating Black women in that way. We had already been crowning women. Um, In fact, most Black institutions had a queen of the university by the time that they had sports programs. So it didn't take us 60 years to figure out um, that Black women being perched on pedestals was and is a political statement. Um, Now for our 
counterpart institutions like um, Florida State, for example, um, during the Black Power era, they had their first uh, Black homecoming queen. And that was a trend, not just in the South, but across the nation. You started to see Black college students push to integrate these all-white college spaces. And as a part of that push, not only do they argue for uh, more courses in Black studies, but they also understand that, again, um, their collective identity could be represented in the form of um, a Black homecoming queen. And so you saw that at several uh, white colleges uh, across the United States. Okay. So the next question I'm going to ask you is really based on my experience and being in class with you and you explaining, beginning to explain this concept of Black beauty pageants and Black queens. In the beginning, I was like, I'm not sure if this is history or if it's any history in that. But the more and more you began to explain, I was like, wait, what are you talking about? My sister was Miss Turkey Bowl Queen, right? Mm-hmm. Sponsored by the sponsored by the um Macy's and Eastern Stars, and it was around here for at least about 40 years before it actually um stopped. And I was escorted college campus queens, all of those things. So, how does the history of black pageantry, a subculture in the black experience, contribute to the study of African American history? Well, it's our art, it's our life, it's our aesthetic, um, and it's certainly a part of the visual culture. Um, When one asked me, you know, how is this history? You know, why did Marcus Garvey advocate for Black dolls? Why did Mary McLeod Bethune um, support and help to manage um, the careers of Black artists and poets who were Uh, committed to the Black aesthetic? Um, Why did you have Walter White, who's executive of the NAACP, work directly with Lena Horne to make sure that her contract was the first in Hollywood to mandate that a Black woman did not have to play a maid? You know, these are the actions and the examples of activism that plainly reflect the way in which Black people understood that image was important. Um, And pageantry is, is, um, I think, a fascinating and important sector of that conversation. All right. Now, I know most people probably would not know the difference between the two because I don't either. What is the difference between (laughs) Miss Black America and Miss Black USA? Oh, that's such a good question. I'm glad you asked. Um, I'm I'm excited anytime there's a personal connection there. And there is. Um, Karen Arrington is a mentor of mine, and she's the founder of Miss Black USA, which was established in 1984. So Miss Black America was founded in 1968 by, um, in part, I wouldn't say fully by the NAACP, but um, its founders, Miss Black America's founder, um, had two daughters who, you know, expressed to their father that 
they had not seen themselves on a Miss America stage. And that really bothered him. And so he works with NAACP and engages in what I feel like was a tremendous um, public relations campaign and literally held the first Miss Black America pageant in Atlantic City on the same day as Miss America. So this was a, a direct action moment in beauty activism whereby um, Black people said, you know, y'all can have your own function, but we've got ours as well. And so um, that was the, the the start of Miss Black America. Um, later on in the 1980s, and this is an interesting story, Mike Tyson actually gets in trouble for some of his interactions with Miss Black America's contestants. And he is um, accused of sexually assaulting one of them. And so Karen Arrington, my mentor, who still lives in Maryland, actually decided that men should have less, if not no role in um organizing these pageants. And so as a woman, she decided that there needed to be um, some some feminine leadership in charge of, of you know, uh, pageantry and, and the presentation of Black women, especially from a protective standpoint, so that men wouldn't just have act free for all access to the contestants in that way. So she starts uh, Miss Black USA in the 1980s, and she's taken it to Africa. Um, there's always been a scholarship component as a part of it, um, and it, it's still, you know, live and in action today, even with the pandemic going on, um, they're, they're having some virtual competitions and virtual applications take place. She's been able to get support from Tyler Perry and providing roles for many of um, the contestants. And I'm very proud to say that most of the girls who um, participate in Miss Black USA, um, all of them are degreed and most of them um, have graduate degrees. Very, very close friend of mine, um, former Miss Black USA, is both a medical doctor and a working actress in Hollywood. So that's the Miss Black USA tradition. And you just kind of point out some of the primary differences between the origins of the black pageant and that of the white pageant. And when I say that, I know in one of your passages, you have, um, you talk about the women and their scholarship and that scholarship wasn't added on to the white pageants until much, much later. So what was the, what is the primary difference between the white pageant and the black pageant? Commercialism and capitalism. Uh, when you talk about, so of course you have smaller local pageants. Um, so when you think about, um, you know, May Days, um, you have the, I'm, I'm from Alabama, I'm from the South. So uh, those of you all who are not may not be familiar with this kind of thing, but you have fairs, you have peanut fairs, peach fairs, and, and that sort of thing. And um, 
European farmers have used pageants as a means to promote their commercial businesses. So you might have Miss Peach County, um, you know, Miss Miss Peanut USA, you know, depending on uh, what region you're talking about. And so all of those have been used for promotional purposes using, again, as I stated earlier, white women as um, ornaments, um, dangly things that um, supposedly attract audiences and bring business. Um, And the same thing occurred with the establishment of Miss America in 1920. It was purely a business motive um, arranged by men who sought to bring commerce to Atlantic City. And so the very first contest was um, called Miss Bathing Beauties, whereby, you know, women were to show off their bodies in hopes that this would bring, um, excuse me, um, in hopes that this would bring attention, people, and money to the boardwalk, uh, where as, as I stated earlier, you know, what is this, um, end of July or no, today is August 1st. Well, in June, we just celebrated Juneteenth. And so when you have these Juneteenth celebrations where Black people are reciting um, Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, and they are really uh, bringing voice to their own definitions of freedom, you have Miss Juneteenth pageants that are attached to that. And so there's a completely different um, means by which pageantry is used to speak to the moment. And so these celebrations, if you're talking about Juneteenth, are rooted in freedom. If you're talking about um, historically Black colleges and, um, and universities, of course, the beauty queens that are, I prefer the term campus queens that are attached to these institutions are again um, at the core rooted in Black people's freedom. And so um, especially if you're talking about colleges, the scholarship component is already there. It's linked to higher education and the hopes that Black people attach to that. Um, Then you also have the organizational queens. Um, If you look through the book, there are... um, Several, I mean, just countless examples. Um, the National Association of Colored Women, um, all kinds of churches, uh, all kinds of um, fraternal organizations that use pageantry to raise money specifically for Black causes and racial uplift. And you, you're just not going to find that at the Miss National Peanut Festival. All right, thank you. Final question before your last comments. How are black beauty pageants still relevant today and how will participating in pageantry help the self-image of black girls and women? This is a question that I often ask participants that I interact with now. Um, I still keep you know, decent relationships with Miss FAMU and other women in those circuits. I just hosted 
a um, virtual event with a former Miss America, Erica Dunlap, um, who wrote the preface to this book. Um, and um, we probably had at least 25 other queens um, at the local level and national level. Um, also former Miss USA, uh, the first black Miss USA was on the call as well. Um, and if you talk to those women, what they'll tell you is that it's still very, very necessary in the same way that black parents seek out books um, that are reflective of their children and the culture um, that they seek to instill in their children, uh, the same way that black people seek out dolls and other forms of visual culture. Um, to give their children access to, um, these women will tell you that Black women in pageantry serve the same purpose. And I recall, again, being a little girl at Tuskegee's homecoming and seeing girls who look like me um, and just they they were so incredibly not beautiful um, just from a uh, physical standpoint, but it was beautiful to see Black community respond to them in the way that they did, to see Black children get excited about a Black queen, to see, you know, grown Black folks uh, be excited to see um, young Black women perched on floats. I mean, there's just something very, very magical about that. And, um, it's no different than any other group of people. A few years ago, didn't Meghan Markle marry Prince Harry and the world stopped and everybody thought it was so important. Um, the world has been in love with Princess Diana. And so Black people, you know, we <laughs> we hold some of the same values that other people do. Good, good thing we don't hold the same values in every sense. But um, in some ways, um, as human beings, um, we too value seeing ourselves. And um, with that, I, I would absolutely argue that um, Black women in pageantry is something that isn't going to go away soon and will remain relevant as long as us looking in the mirror is something we seek to do. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the podcast, New Books in African-American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I am Latif Tariq, Assistant Professor of History and History Program Coordinator at Elizabeth City State University. And the network thanks Dr. Kimberly Brown Pullen for discussing the book, Black Beauties, African-American Pageant Queens and the Segregated South. Thank you. <laughs>